the old elite, in fact, defined itself as a leisure class. That is to say, by an aversion to work. Work was degraded, labor was degraded, and the old elite would spend lots of time signaling that it didn't have to work for a living. Today, if you are rich because you have this super fancy education, the only way you can get income from this wealth is by mixing it with your own labor. That means I have to work myself, and I have to work at whatever job the market pays. Not the thing I want to do, but the thing the market will pay me for. What we see is lawyers working 80, 90, 100 hours a week, bankers pulling all-nighters in their 50s. This was the leisure class. Now, something like the Wall Street Journal runs an advertisement that says people who don't have time to read the Wall Street Journal make time to read the Wall Street Journal because being busy is a signal of how important you are, but it also causes you to be trapped by your wealth. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. Every week on Crazy Money, we explore the connection between money and happiness and work and meaning through the lens of my guests' expertise and or money journeys. And this week's episode is a wonderful example of exactly what I want this podcast to be about. Yale law professor Daniel Markovitz discusses with me his book, The Meritocracy Trap, in which he questions whether or not a lot of the assumptions we make about work, about achievement, really lead us to happier lives. Meritocracy, he argues, penalizes both the middle and lower classes, but it also leads to a scenario that devours the elite. Yes, the 1% is working itself to death. And while you might not think that's the biggest problem our world faces, it certainly presents an existential crisis for a lot of the most successful people we know. And I say successful understanding that it is a relative term and that it is not necessarily absolutely true. We're going to get to my conversation with Daniel Markovitz, and you're going to want to hear this. You're going to want to share the conversation with your friends in the legal profession and the consulting profession and in the investment banking profession. But before we do, last week on Crazy Money, we discussed stoicism with philosophy professor William Irvin from Wright State University. One of the concepts he mentioned was called negative visualization, wherein we imagine the prospect of losing some of the things that provide us joy in our lives, and thereby we develop an appreciation for them. Well, we've had a little bit of a negative visualization happen recently in our house. We've got a little mini quarantine going on from our kids' schools, and this mini quarantine has reminded me how lucky we have been in our house to be able to send our kids to a school that's been operating on campus with masks, socially distanced, since August, and I just want to say thank you again to the teachers and administrators at my kids' school for all the work and care they have put into trying to create as normal a prospect as possible for my children and their schoolmates. If your kids aren't in school, my heart goes out to you. Keep the faith, keep your patience, keep investing every day to try to create a positive experience for them. Speaking of things that make me happy, I was very fortunate to be on the podcast, Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. She, you might recall, is the author of the official preppy handbook and was a guest on Crazy Money just a few weeks ago. She invited me on to discuss the five things in my life that are providing me value during quarantine, and I was happy to share those with her. See the link to that podcast in the show notes, and when you have a moment after you've listened to this amazing conversation with Daniel Markovitz, check out that conversation on her podcast. 
One last thing before we get to the interview, I want to say hello to all the new members of the Crazy Money Listeners fan group on Facebook. Yes, there is such a thing. And if you'd like to be a part of it, well, ask and you shall receive. Go to Facebook, search Crazy Money Listeners, follow the links. Here are some of the new folks, Darren and Jolene Unland. Hello, Trey Clark. How you doing, bud? Thomas Blazer, Michael Majum, a man with no vowel in his last name. I'm sure you've heard jokes about that since you were in fourth grade. Apologies, Mike. Barbara Roach Fisher, Laura McHugh, Lee Killian. Hey, man, what's up? Hopefully it'll be warm. We can play golf again soon. Joel Wallace, Carlos Garcia, Gerardo Suarez, Dan Fahoner. Fahon, Fahon, I don't know. I don't know. That guy sounds like a deadbeat. Lisa Powell, Naimi? Not Aimee. A lot of eyes in that last name. Lisa, maybe you could spare one for Michael Majum. Thanks for all of you for joining from Ithaca, New York, Australia. That is Tasmania. Not just Australia, but Tasmania, bro. Arizona and Redmond, Washington, home of the MSFT, if you know what I'm saying. Also, thanks for the kind ratings and reviews a few of you have left recently. Greatly appreciate it. Turlg? Turlig from Norway? Norway, dude. And thank you to Doc G, T. Shen, lots of dancing. Appreciate the reviews. Glad you're hooked. Let's talk about Daniel Markovitz because this guy is incredible. He is the Guido Calabresi Professor of Law at Yale Law School and the author of The Meritocracy Trap, in which he outlines the price meritocracy imposes on society. In addition to limiting opportunities for the middle and lower classes, it, quote, devours the elite who work brutally long hours at top law firms, investment banks, consulting companies, and other professional services firms. And it's not that these modern day professionals who, let's remind ourselves, earn great livings and don't have to suffer the financial existentialism that some people in the world, that a lot of people, probably most people in the world deal with on a daily basis, but they do have a crisis of meaning in their lives because the golden handcuffs they wear at work, the gilded treadmill on which they are stuck in their jobs, keeps them from maybe discovering who they are as human beings. And there's not that much they can do about it, as I'll discuss with Professor Markovitz here in a minute, except basically walk away or find a niche in which they can take their skills and break free of, oh, let's say the Gilded Treadmill again. I'll just go ahead and repeat that. By the way, I want to do a self-awareness check and that I say at some point in the interview, somewhat self-congratulatory, I say to Professor Markovitz, hey, I was up till 10 o'clock getting ready for this interview. And I know that when I was working 70 hours a week and anybody who's still working it would have laughed their heinies off for me to say, whoa, 10 o'clock, what a big deal. What is it, a half day, Paul? Congratulations, you slack dude. But then that's the point, right? I mean, like, isn't working till 10 o'clock at night, isn't that sufficient? Isn't working till 2 a.m. on a regular basis and working week, isn't that nuts? That's not healthy. And that's really what we're going to discuss today. Again, there's a much bigger cost to society in the form of limited opportunities for the lower and middle classes. But I think for crazy money and for the listenership that this discussion about the price the 1% pay is something that many listeners will find relevant. I hope you'll share it with your friends who may be experiencing this conundrum in their own life. Is it a conundrum? That's not the word I'm really trying to think of, but forgive me. By the way, as you'll hear, Daniel, that is Professor Markovitz, has perhaps the most incredible academic resume of anyone I've ever met. His credentials include two degrees from Yale, one from the London School of Economics, and two degrees from Oxford, Oxford, where he was a Marshall Scholar. I mean, it's pretty intense. I got a uh, partial scholarship to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Just saying. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Daniel Markovitz. 
Daniel Markovitz, welcome to Crazy Money. Real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Daniel, as all good contracts do, let's start at the top by defining our terms. What is meritocracy? So meritocracy is a social and economic system in which people get ahead based not on their race or their gender or their parents, but based on their own accomplishments and achievements. Well, that sounds like a perfectly positive thing. What's not to like about meritocracy? Yeah. So, you know, it was invented by earnest reformers who wanted to break up the old caste system and had the idea that if you let people get ahead based on their own accomplishments, you'd have a more diverse, more capable, more fair elite. And initially, that's how meritocracy worked. But then what happened was that the people who themselves had succeeded through this system developed an exceptional taste for and capacity for training their kids. And because education and training work, what happens is when you have an elite that's willing to invest without limit effectively in educating its kids, rich kids get a kind of training and education that nobody else can match, nobody else can afford to match. And then when you measure people based on their accomplishments, lo and behold, those who had the most invested in training them have the most accomplishments. And then the other thing that happened is this same elite remade the world of work to favor precisely the capacities and skills that this highly elite education gives. So then the kids that were the rich kids that got the fancy training now dominate the workforce, get enormous incomes based on their training, and the cycle goes down and down and down through the generations. So it's kind of a two-pronged effect, meritocracy. Not only do the elite end up working more in this cycle of achievement, but middle-class and lower-class people don't have the opportunity to improve their lot in the economy. Yeah, it's both. So that, you know, the gap between what is spent on educating a really rich kid in America today and what is spent on educating a middle class kid is enormous. Just to give a rough number to this, for like a high school student, the average American public high school spends twelve to $15,000 a year per student on educating the kids who go to it. The Forbes top 20 most elite private schools spend about $75,000 a year. Mm. per student on educating their students. So that's a $60,000 a year difference between what's spent on educating a rich kid and what's spent on educating a middle-class kid in America today. And what societal problems does this result in? Not just that I might have a better job than the next person, but like what large-scale problems does this present for our economy and our society? Yeah, great. I mean, I think there are three kinds of problems. The first is it produces enormous inequality of outcomes. The rich kids who get those educations then go to jobs that pay incredible salaries. And the gap between elite wages and middle-class wages has exploded. And you know this is true. A partner at a law firm used to make maybe 10 times what a legal secretary made. Today, a partner at a law firm makes 50 or 100 times what a legal secretary makes. A cardiologist used to make four or five times what a nurse makes. Today, a cardiologist makes eight to 10 times what a nurse makes. And so what's happened is the elite jobs get enormous incomes, and that produces huge differences in income and wealth. So that's one problem. A second problem is this produces exclusion from real opportunity for almost everybody except children of rich people. If you're not born rich, you can't afford to get the kind of education that you need to get into the colleges that dominate the elite jobs. So, you know, at the Ivy Plus colleges, there are now 
more kids whose parents are in the richest 1% of the population than the entire bottom half. And then the third is it turns out this isn't good for the elite because the people who go through this incredibly demanding, rigorous training and then work all the time don't have freedom, don't have leisure, don't have time to pursue the things they care about because they're constantly trying to get income in order to be able to afford to educate their children in the extravagant way that their kids will need to preserve their caste. And so this is a system that you know, excludes most people from meaningful advantage and then traps those who seem to be benefited in a form of life that's probably not that happy and that they can't get out of. Now, all these problems that meritocracy presents are important and impactful, but I think for our listeners, I'd like to spend a little bit more time on the third bucket, which is the impact that the system from which we benefit also traps us and keeps us from living perhaps the best life we can live. Let's start by distinguishing the lifestyles of an elite aristocrat from, say, 150 years ago who made his living by reaping the rewards of a coal mine or a railroad versus a high-end lawyer who is practicing financial law in New York City. So first of all, if you're rich because you own land or a factory or a railroad, as you say, the way you get income is you mix your wealth with somebody else's labor and you exploit those people and the money rolls in and you don't have to do anything for it. That sounds great. How do I get into that? Exactly. And so, you know, you can do what you want. You can spend your life on leisure or whatever interests you. And the old elite, in fact, defined itself as a leisure class. That is to say, by an aversion to work. Work was degraded. Labor was degraded. And the old elite would spend lots of time signaling that it didn't have to work for a living. Now, today... If you are rich because you have this super fancy education and you're a banker at Goldman or a lawyer at Wachtell or Cravath, the only way you can get income from this wealth is by mixing it with your own labor. Because we don't have a technology yet that allows me to rent out my skill to somebody else. And I go sit on the beach and they use my training and I take a cut. That means I have to work myself and I have to work at whatever job the market pays not the thing I want to do, but the thing the market will pay me for. And so I become trapped by my own wealth. And you know what we see is lawyers working 80, 90, 100 hours a week, bankers pulling all-nighters in their 50s, elite managers at big companies working 50, 60, 70 hours a week. You know This was the leisure class. Now, something like the Wall Street Journal runs an advertisement that says people who don't have time to read the Wall Street Journal, make time to read the Wall Street Journal. Because being busy is a signal of how important you are. But it also causes you to be trapped by your wealth. And in these superordinate jobs, there really is a huge difference between the hours people in the 1% are working than those in the rest of the economy. The men in the 1%, one statistic you use, work 50% longer hours than their counterparts in the bottom 50% of the country. Yeah. And this is both sides of the problem. So the reason why people in the middle class and working class don't work so many hours is not that they're lazy and don't want to work. It's that the economy is not producing jobs that they can do. So that, you know, even right now when official unemployment well before the pandemic was pretty low, labor force participation was not very high. So there were lots of people who didn't count as unemployed because they weren't looking for jobs. And they weren't looking for jobs because the economy does not provide enough stable, long-term, full-time, middle-class jobs. 
At the same time, the economy provides these jobs for elite managers or bankers or lawyers where you have to work 80, 90 hours a week in order to keep your job. And so some people have too much work and most people don't have enough work. And that's not good for either group. And it seems to even complicate empathy going down because people in the elite areas are like, hey, look, I work 90 hours a week. I'm giving up my life for this income. Clearly, I'm earning this. So why do I have to feel sorry for anybody who's not working like I am? I mean, one of the invidious features of this system is that it deceives those on top into thinking that they've earned it. And it does that in two ways. First, it's really competitive mm-hmm. to get a job at Goldman Sachs. Sure. So you have to be pretty good at what you do, and you have to have tried really hard, and you have to have done better than other people. And that fact disguises from you that the only way you had the opportunity to get so good at what it is you're doing is that you had incredibly privileged parents who invested in you in a way that nobody else could afford to do. So it seems like it's on you, but in fact, it's also on your circumstances. And then the second thing is because you get paid so much, you have this feeling that you must be worth it, that you must be producing (laughs) a lot for society. Right, right. You know, and look, some English economists did a study last year in which they asked basically for every dollar that a nurse or a teacher or a garbage collector contributes to society, how much income do they get? And the answer is about 10 cents. So these are jobs whose social product is 10 times their wage. But if you ask for every dollar that an investment banker contributes to society, how much income do they get? The answer is a dollar or even a little bit more. So these are people who capture all their social product for themselves, whereas there are lots of middle-class jobs which have these great positive benefits for society, but the people who do the jobs don't get those as wages. So again, it's deceptive to think that because you're paid so much, you do so much for the common good. You just don't. Which presents yet another problem. Is there a feeling of emptiness on the part of those workers who don't have the satisfaction of saying, I get to look at a child whose eyes I just opened up to the world of mathematics or history or poetry. They don't get the warm fuzzies that people in other occupations might have of helping their fellow man. Well, I think that's probably true. You know, if you're in elite finance or law today, you're mostly working for large concentrations of capital for abstract entities that it's hard to be committed to. Now, I should say, there are some people who do those jobs who genuinely love that work. They find it interesting, compelling. Lots of the problems are difficult. They love the work. And for those people, the jobs may be rewarding. But the critical thing is, if you want the wage, there's a very limited selection of jobs you can do. Even if you don't like that work, right? you still have to do that work right. if you want to get rich. That's the conundrum that I found myself in in my career is like, boy, I really like this work. I like the people I'm with. I don't like working 70, 80 hours a week, but it's all or nothing once you get to a certain level. There's no like senior vice president job that's a 30 hours a week at half the pay kind of gig. Right. And, you know, this is now anecdotal, but, you know, I teach elite law students. And so they grow up and they become lawyers. I know a fair number of people who do these jobs. And when I ask them mid-career would you trade a third of your income for 30 hours a week back to do whatever you want? A hundred percent of them say yes. Right. But the problem is those jobs don't exist. Right. There's no investment bank called Joe's pretty good investment bank, home of the 40 hour work week. Right. 
That's exactly right. And you know, even in law, there are lifestyle firms. But what the lifestyle firm means is there's no mandatory minimum billable, but in fact, you got to work 80 hours a week. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? I don't get it. Well, so law firms measure lawyers' work in six-minute segments. And you have to keep track of what you do every six minutes throughout the day. And you have to accumulate over the course of the year a certain number of hours that your firm bills you out to clients right. in order to get your bonus or advance or stay in the partnership. And some firms have mandatory minima. So if you don't bill 2,400 hours a year, you're in trouble. It should be said, that's a pretty standard mandatory minimum now. The American Bar Association in 1960 said there are approximately 1,600 billable hours available to a lawyer in a year. So the mandatory minimum is now one and a half times what the ABA in the 60s said the human maximum was. And that gives you a sense for just how pressured the people in these jobs are. Well, if you think about your client's business while you sleep, can't you bill those hours? Yeah, no, <laughs> not ethically, <laughs> not ethically. You know, one other thing that's happened, of course, this is now a little inside baseball, but uh, clients are getting more sophisticated and they're managing what they're willing to pay for, for the lawyers. So the other thing that's happening, and this is not just true for lawyers, it's true for lead executives also. 360-degree evaluations, which are common in elite firms, means that everybody is constantly evaluating everybody else. And you know, the CEO of a firm is massively surveilled in the workplace. Now, they have a lot of power, they have a lot of wealth, but they can't spend their hours however they want because they're constantly being assessed and evaluated by the next in line, by the people they work with, by the board, so these are also high-pressure jobs in addition to being long-hours jobs. And we're talking about law firms, but the same can be said of consulting firms and advertising agencies, any kind of professional work that is the currency of which is the hours in the professional's day. It's astonishing. If you compare Rafael Nadal's practice habits with John McEnroe's, no comparison. McEnroe used to not practice very much. Nadal is training all the time. Even people who you think of as celebrities, you know, the Kardashians, work incredibly long hours to keep themselves in front of the public, engaged with their sponsors, managing all their relationships. This is a system in which to get and stay at the top, you have to be a maniac worker. And you know, those who are excluded have no reason to be sympathetic with you for that because they're excluded. But the fact that you don't deserve your advantages doesn't mean that you're living well. And the fight at the top is an almost literal professional hunger games. I mean, it is up or out at a certain point. And if you're up, your reward for winning the pie eating contest is more pie. Yes. These are not jobs that become comfortable in your 50s. These are jobs where the pressure remains and might even increase. Okay, let's imagine a not unrealistic pretend law firm where each partner makes $3 million a year and each associate works 90 hours a week. Why not just hire more lawyers and reduce both pay and hours by 33%? Is it just because they don't want to make less money? So I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this. And the truth is I don't have a good answer. Here are the three kinds of answers that I can come up with. The first is people just want more money. And that's probably just misplaced and shallow lack of self-knowledge because they'd be happier if they had less money but more time. The second is that 
it's another feature of our world that you know money for people in this situation doesn't mean opportunities to spend it because they have enough <laughs> money that they're not buying things that they can care about anymore. Right. It means status. It means a sense of accomplishment. It's a positional good. And how much your money is worth to you depends on how much other people have. And so people have internalized this ranking system. And so one of the reasons they want the extra money is that they want the extra success, which is equated with the money. So that's a second reason. And you know that's not a particularly good reason, but if you're in the system, you're in the system. And even if it can be shown to be just an ideology, it's real to you. And then I think the third reason is the way in which these firms operate makes it very hard to provide the level of attentiveness and service that their clients demand and the level of expertise that the work demands if you're not in it all the way. Imagine someone in the MBA says, you know, I want to take every other month off. Sure. Right. That person would not be a competitive pro basketball player. That's a little bit true also in worlds of law and finance, but that doesn't mean that the competition produces anything incredibly valuable. If your listeners go online, you can look at a GIF of the winning women's Olympic vault in the Summer Olympics in 1960 and 2012. And the difference is just astonishing. You know, the 1960 woman, she runs up to the vault. She does a flip and lands on her feet. The, the 2012 <laughs> woman has done like three flips before she gets to the thing that she springs off of and then does five more. And here's the thing. The 1960 version was something that you and I as regular people can associate with. It was sports as not just spectator, but participatory. And it was something that did not require the winner to damage her body in order to win. Whereas the 2012 version, it's meaningless to you and me. We could never do any of those things. And for the athlete herself, the only way to get that good is to go through a regime of training and diet and exercise and manipulation that is in effect a disorder. I had Apollo Ono on here and he talked about his training regimen and it was insane and completely unsustainable past a certain point. Yeah. I mean, managing calories down to the point of, you know, every bite that he ate, not like, you know, a sandwich, like eat four fifths of that sandwich at this time of day and then exercise at extreme levels five to six times a day. It's not a way that anyone is supposed to live for any extended period of time. All right. Now, if you weren't an athlete, this would be called an eating disorder. Right. That's not so different from the banker who wakes up at four in the morning to check their phone and then starts working and works till the end of the day. That's also a kind of compulsion. That's not actually doing something that you love. It's trapped in a system. So what happens to the people, you know, you say you talk to your former students who are at mid-career and they all say that they would willingly trade a third of their money for a third more time. What choices do they have at that point? And what do you see them doing to try to recapture that marginal time in their lives and the relationship with their family or their physical fitness or whatever other things they believe they have sacrificed for work? You know, there's kind of a paradox here. I think for individuals, there are choices. Some people, you know, they're just, they've saved up enough. They can now become an old fashioned aristocrat. Right. 
live off their wealth, not their income, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, socially, that's not good for anybody, but as a private choice, that's something you can do. Some people find niches where you can really, something like have it all. They find specialties in their profession where you don't have to work as hard because you've built up certain skills that become valuable that you can parcel out. They find firms or institutions that have a place for somebody and they make the trade. Now, the problem is not everybody can do that because there aren't enough of those places that you have to find like a loophole rather than the system. Right. And others, when status is at stake, the human condition makes people remarkably willing to undergo what is really a kind of self-harm in order to retain their status. And so they just grind it out. Right. Let's talk about the effect elites are passing on to their children. You cite an example of a pretty extreme application essay that was received by Yale's undergraduate admissions department. Can you share that anecdote, please? Yeah, this was somebody who was applying to elite universities and in her essay, in order to signal how intellectually serious she was, she told a story that she was having a conversation with a high school teacher, I think it was a French teacher, which was particularly interesting to her. She was so interested that she really had to go to the bathroom, but she didn't want to break off the conversation. So she just urinated in her pants instead of ending the conversation, go to the bathroom and pick it up again. Wow. And, you know, the striking thing is, one, that someone would do this, and two, that they would think that signaling this meant, oh, this is the kind of person that a university wants, right? Somebody who is so single-minded. And this is not a good thing that a system produces this in children. So the obvious question is, did she get in? You know, I'm not totally sure. I don't, <laughs> I don't believe so, but I don't know for sure. Uh, this is a story told by an admissions officer, and I don't know what the rest of the story is. Right. Well, where do you think that comes from? You know, I mean, like, what is she seeing at home that that is the way one is supposed to be? You know, look, it comes from, I think, a desperate social, familial, and institutional desire need to acquire status and caste. It's not so different from, think about the Varsity Blues admissions scandal. These are the prominent rich families that bribed universities to get in. You know, one of the cases was somebody who was a sophisticated person who I think was a, a managing partner of a serious law firm at one point in his career, who had paid somebody to falsify his child's ACT test, had not told the child. I think. So the child believed that they had achieved scores they hadn't achieved. Now, you know, this is a, a shocking and scandalous and wrongful thing to do to everybody who didn't get in. But think also about what your relationship with your kid must be like, that you're willing to do this illegal, high chance of getting caught, very damaging to your child thing, just so that they can get a CV line in a world in which you're probably rich enough that they don't actually need the money in their lives. And yet you care so much that you'll basically destroy your child's psychology and subject yourself to criminal sanction so they get admitted to a college. This is not well behavior. That's certainly an extreme example, but at the high-end wealthy schools, you're seeing more drug and alcohol abuse, you're seeing suicide clusters, higher rates of depression and anxiety. 
Is that because elites pass on their anxiety to their kids, either by the atmosphere they create or by their own DNA? I think some of it is the pressure cooker of, of elite families. Yes. I think a lot of it is a constant fear of not measuring up. I think another part of it, and this is maybe more high-minded of me, and maybe it's not fair, maybe it's inapt, but you know, if you spend your whole life trying to live up to somebody else's standards and desires for you, and you don't learn how to care about something because you care about it and to do the thing you want to do, I think when you reach young adulthood, there's a kind of emptiness in which you're just not equipped to chart a path for yourself, to value things, to take satisfaction, because everything is external. And obviously, this is a, an extreme and exaggerated and stylized account of any individual person, but those are the forces at play. Right. Let's play devil's advocate for a second here. You yourself have a pretty sparkling academic record. Let me break it down just so that the listener understands BA Mathematics from Yale University, a master's in econometrics and mathematical economics from London School of Economics. You become a Marshall Scholar and go to Oxford, where you earn another master's degree and a doctorate. Then, just for kicks, you return to New Haven and go to Yale Law School. Now, you are the poster child for meritocracy on some level. What drove you to those academic lengths? Look, yeah. First of all, it's right. Second of all, I'm now sort of participating in the making of the system I'm criticizing. <laughs> We're all playing a role one way or the other. Right? So my hands are not clean. One thing that happened just in my particular life is I just got lucky. People say you'd rather be lucky than good. And luck is like the greatest thing. Right? You know, and so if you can get lucky, then you can navigate the system in a pretty happy way. But you need to get lucky. But in what way did you get lucky? There's a lot of work involved in obtaining those degrees. Even There is a lot of work. You know, there's small-scale luck. There are various occasions in which I'm absolutely certain that somebody in a position to evaluate me or judge me, judged me as better than I was. I can remember any number of occasions like that. And, you know, they add on top of each other, and then suddenly you have a pretty good career. I also had enormous luck that I graduated law school at a moment when the job market was really good. And so it was much less competitive. Five years earlier, five years later, may not have been true. So there's a lot of that kind of just dumb, small-scale, brute luck, random. You can't tell a social story about it. It's not even like an injustice. I mean, I also was lucky. I had parents who gave me a lot of support. That kind of thing, you could tell a story. That's a social injustice when you have a society in which who your parents are makes a big difference to your outcomes. But then there's also just like the random chance part of it, and it ends up going easier for you. But it's also true, if I'm being honest, that I probably work harder than I should, and I probably care more about being seen to do well at things than is actually healthy or warranted. So in many ways, I am describing myself probably also. How many hours a week are you working these days? I'm not being coy. Does this count as work? That's a good question. This doesn't feel like work to me. I was up till 10 last night preparing for this interview. Right. Because I care about this discussion. Yeah. So, you know, there are lots of things like that in my life. You know, I talked earlier about finding a niche. 
you know, if you can get tenure at a well-funded American university, you found one of those niches where you can do the things you care about and you're not going to make banker money, but you're going to be very comfortable. And so that's just, again, luck. Do you ever have to remind yourself of that trade-off that if when you see somebody coming in with a 10 or $15 million payday, do you say, I'm doing exactly what I want to do? I embrace both the benefits and the costs that come along with that? I'm actually starting working on a book now about what it is to have enough. And there's quite a lot of data now about at what point of income, having more income doesn't make you happier, especially if you cannot live in New York. <laughs> right. So that, right. <laughs> you know, if you live in a place where housing is not so expensive, I live happily materially. And so I don't have that feeling. But again, that's also partly dumb luck because if I were living in New York on an academic income, you're then in a much smaller apartment. Right. 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 But these are nuances, right? Columbia versus Yale is kind of a nuance, isn't it? And I mean, you make the decision to live a little bit further out in the country. And, you know, get a little bit more square footage as opposed to having, in non-COVID times, the grit and the friction that makes yeah. life so interesting in the city. Look, the faculty at Columbia is, is living pretty well, too. Again, yeah, they're these, doing okay. These well-funded American universities. Let's be clear. If you are someone who is doing the core teaching work at CUNY, you are not getting paid very much. Right. And your position is precarious. And you're working a lot of hours and the new administration can decide your department doesn't have the enrollments it needs and you can get kicked out. You might be making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, you know, which is roughly median household income in America. But in New York, fifty thousand dollars a year. At that point, you're making trade-offs where the knife cuts. And that's after spending 19 or 22 years in school. Yeah. Exactly. So there are lots of people in universities who are having a tough time. Let's use that as a great inflection point to start to answer the question. So what do we do about it, right? If the idea is that the rich work too much and make more money than they need, and the middle class needs money and doesn't work enough, how do we trade upper class hours for middle class hours? Great. So on the labor market side, because we got to address this both on the work side and on the schooling side. On the work side, what we need to do is invest both in terms of taxes and subsidies, but also in terms of regulations in remaking labor markets to favor mid-skilled jobs, and in particular jobs that have an incredibly high social product that are really valuable for the community, even if they don't maybe pay as much to the person who does them. So, you know, we don't have enough teachers in this country. We don't have nearly enough nurse practitioners, nutritionists, exercise therapists. Now, those are people who do an enormous amount, for example, talk about the healthcare workers for population health. We have too many heart surgeons relative to the number of exercise therapists we have. Let's be very concrete. You know, I went for a run. I run occasionally. Now, I'm never going to be fast, right? I run because I think it's good for me. But I don't actually know how I should run to maximize the benefit for my health. Should I run four miles three times a week, 10 miles once a week? Should I walk every day? I don't know the answer to those questions. And if I want somebody to help me manage my exercise to make me healthy in the long run, my insurance company won't pay for that. 
they won't pay for a personal trainer or a lifestyle coach. But if I don't do those things and 10 years from now I have a heart attack and I need a heart transplant, I have pretty good insurance. My insurance company will pay a million dollars for me to get a new heart. Now that's crazy from a public health perspective, but it's also crazy from a labor market perspective. Because if we had a regulatory regime that encouraged the use of people like nutritionists, personal trainers, lifestyle coaches, we would create a whole bunch of jobs. And those are good jobs. So you're talking about preventative care versus extreme health care. But what's a concrete example of that? Okay, you're saying that let's promote the use of those people who, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but intermediate skills as opposed to the highest end skills that are also the most expensive and cost insurance companies the most money. Okay, so that's an example. But what about in the field of law or consulting? Like these high-end professionals, they want more time in their day or they say they do. And so they outsource home domestic activities or tutoring their kid, but they don't actually use that as a leisure hour. They use it as another hour at work. Right. So let's talk about law. We have a funny problem in this country about law, which is that rich people have too many lawyers and everybody else doesn't have enough lawyers. (laughs) Right. Right. I don't know. There seem to be enough lawyers around. Well, no, look, I'm serious about this. Try getting divorced as a middle-class person. You know, you want a divorce lawyer. The market is set up in such a way that a competent divorce lawyer is going to cost you and your divorcing spouse a sum so that what you two pay them together is going to eat up a large portion of the money you're fighting about. Try to get somebody to help you manage your social security benefits, or your disability claim. You can't find somebody to do that because we don't have enough provision of legal services for those people. Now, there are lots of reasons for that. One reason for that is in order to be a lawyer in America, you have to go to four years of college and three years of law school. And that's true regardless of whether your practice is going to involve mergers and acquisitions for General Electric or helping me with my disability claim. And if we change the training, So that we trained up a bunch of people who would help middle-class people when they interact with the law in exchange for a middle-class wage, we would both provide better legal services and create, again, a whole bunch of good jobs. Like the legal version of a nurse practitioner. The legal version of a nurse practitioner. You know, and we can tell the same story in management in the old American mid-century firm where you had lifetime employment, many layers of middle management. And people got training at work and worked their way up through the firm. Either as white-collar workers, they worked their way up the managerial scale, or as blue-collar workers, they started off as line workers and they became specialists, tool and die makers or something. What you had is a system which distributed the running of the firm across the whole workforce. Now what you have is CEOs and management consultants who command the whole firm after you've stripped out all the middle management. The production workers are no longer lifetime employees. They're controlled by surveillance and algorithms. And again, you have this bifurcated system in which the elite managers have too much discretion and power. Everybody else has not enough. And it looks like the surgeon versus the nurse or the M&A lawyer versus the person who helps with disabilities claims. Again, in management, you have the CEO and McKinsey, and then everybody else is being stripped of discretion, of interest, of pay. And again, we could reconstruct the workplace to upskill the middle class, give them wages and discretion that matches their new skills, and have a much more equal workplace. What's your confidence level that 
in a time of political divisiveness, plans like this could really come to reality? I don't have much confidence about anything about politics <laughs> right now. You know, there's so much uncertainty. I just don't know. But here's the optimistic version of the story. I'm ready for that. One of the reasons why we have such political divisiveness is that there is widespread fundamental dissatisfaction with the system as it is. And the existing sort of ideological structure of the parties doesn't really grab hold of what's making people dissatisfied. You know, this is why you could have Sanders Trump voters. Right. Right. A lot of people would say, I would vote for Sanders, but if he's not in the race, I'm going to vote for Trump. Hard to understand that. Completely opposite ideologically speaking. Right. Unless what you're saying is there's dissatisfaction and people think the mainstreams of both parties don't understand what's going on. And so that's the moment for a new diagnosis, which says the problem is not the ones that have traditionally dominated our politics. And, you know, what we need is what a skilled, a really skilled politician does. Explain that kind of a reframing in a way that's charismatic for lots of people and gets them to buy into it and gets them to see that there are things we can solve together that we cannot solve separately. And so there's a way in which the dysfunction that we have right now, while very dangerous, is also the necessary precursor for solving the problem. Well, Daniel Markovitz, you've given us a lot to think about today, and I appreciate your time. Where can our listeners find out more about you? You know, probably the best thing I tweet occasionally, and uh, please come see at DS Markovitz. I don't tweet about my own work, but I tweet about other people's work that I think is interesting, which I take to be a feature, not a bug. That's great. We'll put links to that and to your book, The Meritocracy Trap, in the show notes. Once again, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. Real pleasure. Thanks again to Professor Daniel Markovitz of Yale Law School. Please do check out the links to his Twitter feed and the book website in the show notes. I really did find that conversation extremely thought-provoking. Are the things that we've always taken for granted as to our status and income, are those the things that actually lead us to happiness. You know, last week with Bill Irvin, we discussed things like terminal and instrumental goals. Terminal goals are the things we actually want in life, like to be happy, to be healthy. Instrumental goals are the things that we think will get us there. Like I want to be a partner at a law firm because then I'll be happy, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. And I think that those kinds of questions are worth considering. Are the instrumental desires that we have and the ones we end up chasing the most are those really getting us to the terminal desires we should all be focused on? That is the being happy. What are the things that actually get us there? So thanks again to Daniel Markovitz. Here's my takeaways. Here are my takeaways. Would want to use poor grammar after speaking to somebody of such incredible academic accomplishment. First of all, before I even start with the takeaways, I want to acknowledge that if I sound kind of judgmental in the discussion of this topic, as if I'm better than the people or that we should all be better than the people who are working these really long hours, I don't mean to come across that way at all. I believe this topic is important because, first of all, I was on that path for a long time. You know, I went to an Ivy League business school. I was putting myself at the top firms, working those hours. At a certain point, I was fortunate enough to have both the flexibility and I think the perspective to say, this isn't getting me where I want to go. And yeah, it came at the cost of a lot of foregone income, but the other parts of my life are in pretty good shape, I think. And I want to remind myself of that daily. Occasionally I'll sit there and be like, boy, I sure would like to have, you know, fill in the blank of something incredibly luxurious. And then I go, wait a minute, would I rather have 
my sanity? Would I rather have a good marriage and a healthy relationship with my kids? The answer is absolutely yes. Takeaways. First of all, if you're a young professional and you see yourself on the path that has been described in this interview, by all means, understand that your professional reckoning is likely coming, that there will be an existential identity crisis coming your way in your 40s or maybe around 50. It's going to happen. And the way you prepare yourself for that is twofold. Number one, live within your means. Save your money. Don't let your lifestyle expand. Not only save your money, but don't let your lifestyle, your burn rate expand to the point where basically 90% of your income is spoken for before it even arrives in your bank account. The lake houses, the private schools, the country clubs, all these things will prevent you from acquiring walkaway money. F you money is so garish, isn't it? Maintain that lifestyle, maintain a manageable lifestyle that's, you know, on half the income you're making so that you have the financial wherewithal to bail if you want to bail in the future. Secondly, Think of that niche that Daniel was talking about. What's your professional niche? How are you going to carve out a space either working in a different industry or using your specialized knowledge to create the kind of work environment? Maybe it's a smaller firm. Maybe it's a specialized role inside of a client where you can live a more manageable lifestyle as opposed to the 80, 90 hours a week at whatever private practice you've got going on. Think about the future, young people. It's coming. Secondly, second takeaway, if you're one of these people who is in the midst of a career crisis, first of all, acknowledge that you have the right to be stressed by your golden handcuffs. These are real problems. Don't let the fact that other people would say, well, I'd kill to have that kind of job. Yeah, well, you know, to a point, maybe they would. Acknowledge the gravity of your situation. Hire a therapist or at least a career coach to put together a plan to make a change. Give yourself the time. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to take a while to either change your burn rate or you know, strategize on your professional niche or wait for the right opportunity to go client side or you know, whether it's in an in-house counsel role or a CFO or a controller, if you're a financial person, you got to wait for those things to happen. But give yourself the credit that this is an issue that needs to be handled and take care of yourself in the meantime. While every day isn't a crisis, it can feel like that, which might lead you to make some pretty rash decisions. Don't make rash decisions. Don't do that. Lastly, I'm just glad there's people like Daniel Markovitz out there, brilliant, motivated people who are working on the edge, the highest accomplishing people in the world. And yet they're also sitting there going, is this what we should be doing? Are we living our lives right? Are the things that we take for granted really getting us where we want to go? I think that this book, The Meritocracy Trap, is one of the most important ones that anybody who's on the road to a career in the 1% can read to ask themselves those questions so they don't find themselves trapped later on in life. And that is it for the takeaways. Young people prepare for a change. Middle-aged people acknowledge that it's a problem. And lastly, read The Meritocracy Trap. Links to it are in the show notes. I'm so glad you stuck around to the end. Next week, I have a great interview with Ron Lieber, previous guest on Crazy Money when he was talking about his book, The Opposite of Spoiled. He's got a new book out called The Price We Pay for College. It goes in depth on the intricacies of college admissions, and I know you'll find it to be interesting. Tune back in then. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart. <laughs> 